There aren't any words to that can properly tell you how bittersweet these days are. The disclosures from President Reagan's former national security advisor didn't stop there. McFarlane also detailed just how involved President Reagan was in getting around Congress for secret aid to the Nicaraguan rebels. And the things that we would like to say to all of you. First off, a proposal by Francis Mitterrand for cooperation on ways to ensure that robots and other technology don't create widespread unemployment. President Reagan agreed to a study, but insisted that private enterprise, not government, solve the problem. You know, I keep remembering back and uh, not too far when someplace along the line there would always be a picture of a president standing in the old office looking out the window, usually the picture from behind. About 1,800 American troops, they were sent there by President Reagan early this morning. Grenada is an island country that is now in the control of a Marxist military council. And he's standing there, and then his words are quoted as a tag for that picture about this is the loneliest place, and what a lonely, and so forth. I don't know about them. I haven't been lonely one minute. The union is betting that by holding out in an illegal strike, it can use public pressure to force the administration to meet its demands. And Wallard says the government isn't coming clean with the facts and the figures. Here's the difference between the two ways of dealing with a nation's economy. With Reaganomics, you cut taxes. Well, the president's staff in Paris today worked at some serious diplomatic patchwork in the Falklands flap at the United Nations. I have grandchildren. No, my grandchildren go to school. I do not want them to have a teacher that has AIDS. So what I'm saying is that, that it's, uh, it just isn't going to work. And it's very interesting that the man who invested this type of what I call a voodoo economic policy here in this house, but over there in the West Wing, or just here in Washington. All a part of everything we came here to do, and it couldn't have been done without you. And we've all shared, and I like to think maybe it's kind of close to what happened 200 years ago. We were all revolutionaries, and the revolution has been a success. What is solved? Do not all questions of our lives as we live remain behind us like foliage obstructing our view? To uproot this foliage, even to thin it out, does not occur to us. We stride on, leave it behind, and from a distance it is indeed open to view, but indistinct, shadowy, and all the more enigmatically entangled. I came up with a joke um, a long time ago that I don't think anyone has laughed at with any real honesty. 
so I'm going to force it on you now and hope for the best. What do you call a golem at a party? A social construct. Get it? Because the mythical golem is a vengeful approximation of a human created from clay and the righteous rage of an oppressed people, and it's having to talk to folks over the punch bowl. In politics, as with jokes, if you're having to explain, you're already losing. That's the common wisdom, at least. And it may be exactly that, in the tense yet ultimately meaningless theater the U.S. population engages in every few years. But that's not how real politics works. Meaningful, ground-level politics. Politics on the street is almost nothing but explaining, explaining and organizing. And what exactly does this mean? What exactly is being built? This one's an easy one. Whether it's concentrated in the hands of the ultra-wealthy and disseminated lavishly in the service of protecting itself, or whether it's distributed among the working class and the marginalized, spread enough to be just tolerable on their backs and shoulders, the idea we're looking for, the reason superheroes make such good metaphors, the concept at the heart of all of this is power. What is power? When we say that someone has power, what do we mean? Obviously, in the context of the Justice League, or just superhero comics in general, uh, that's pretty much a no-brainer. But even here, even now, it's not as simple as it seems. Beyond superpowers, we've explored a few specific meanings of the idea over the course of this podcast so far. In episode one, we characterized this comic book as a product of its time. It's a reflection of the power that shaped it. Shallow and materialistic heroes fighting the evil forces of egalitarianism. If you're just coming into the show now, you're probably confused by that, but don't worry. We covered the fact that this Justice League's very first fight was against a group of 60s radicals protesting at the UN for an end to poverty and oppression. And since then, the book has caricaturized revolutionary leaders such as Muammar Gaddafi, issue two, episode two, and broad-stroked entire cultures as being mindless zealots, issue three, episode three. This league, as we've seen and shall see, also has a strangely comfortable relationship with corporate influence, issue four in episode four, but also basically all of them. We've even gotten a few glimpses into the somewhat backwards view of power this book has when it comes to anger, mass movements, and entrenched gatekeeping. The Gray Man being a prime example spread across issues 5, 6, and, as we'll see, at the beginning of 7. So what do all these things have in common? What thread ties them all together? It's not simply a cultural hegemony or soft power, but it's also a material power. It's wealth and resources and the means to defend that by violent force or the overwhelming of any opposition. If there's anything that we have to understand from this comic book and from the greater context surrounding it, it's that material power begins to coagulate and solidify. It begins to concentrate in ways that self-perpetuate. The people with material power establish systems that further entrench it, and they summon enforcers in large enough numbers with sophisticated enough weaponry to protect it. They reward these enforcers handsomely because they are the first and the last lines of defense against the masses of workers whose labor created this material wealth in the first place. 
Political philosopher Michael Parenti argues in his book, Black Shirts and Reds, that contrary to popular belief, fascism is better universally defined as an economic state of affairs rather than a cultural process of exclusion. Despite the disparate beliefs and codes of the various fascist camps and projects, the one thing that all successfully implemented fascist movements have had in common is their absolute devotion to economic freedom for capital and large industry. This is why in Nazi Germany, homophobia, although a major propaganda point, was actually tolerated within the Reich until Hitler had his commander of the brown-shirted SA stormtroopers executed officially for his sexual deviance. Unofficially, however, it was because the brown shirts under this commander had helped gain the Nazis their power by stoking populist working class rage against the owners of capital. Once the Nazis had this power base, it was obviously no longer necessary and indeed even counterproductive for the party to continue to posture against big business. Thus, while it was politically useful, Hitler set aside the rhetorical homophobia he'd platformed. The social took a back seat the economic. The material supersedes everything else. This is power. When a workers' organization shuts down a factory, or a union like IATSE plans a strike to stop work on Hollywood productions or demand better working conditions, when coal miners in West Virginia stop all work and barricade the mines with equipment owned by their bosses, when garment workers in India flood the street in protest, this is power. When Ronald Reagan signed Executive Order 12368 in 1982 and authorized the US military to assist local law enforcement in preventing drug abuse, thereby effectively declaring war on a population of citizens that had already been marginalized by the deliberate influx of drugs into their communities by the Nixon and Reagan administrations, when he basically said that it was acceptable to shoot, to bomb, to obliterate human beings, simply perceived to be involved in the use or sale of recreational drugs. That was power. This is a podcast about power and weakness, accumulation and distribution, good and evil. This is a podcast about heroes, but more importantly, it's a podcast about villains. America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future is going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's on it forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, can save my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future. 1997. In previous episodes, I've given you some background on the Justice League as a whole, as well as some of its individual members. In this episode, we're going to look ahead. But before we talk about what happens in the comic book after this, 
I'd like to share my thoughts on what happened to the comic book after this. I mentioned in episode one that this book is a staple of the Justice League diet, that it has staying power. Well, now I'm going to talk about why I believe that is, despite all the criticism I've piled on this piece of garbage. In so many comics up to the 1980s and 1990s, it was all about the superpowers. It was all about the fantastic and fantastical abilities these modern myths possessed and used. Crack open any superhero story from the early days, and you'll have to suffer through at least a page of explicit exposition of just who you're reading about. Captain America was frozen in ice after fighting the Nazis, but the super soldier serum he was given allowed him to survive until he was thawed and now grants him the speed and strength to continue the battle. Superman came to Earth as an infant, and our yellow sun imbues him with godlike abilities. Gamma radiation researcher Bruce Banner saved a young boy from the explosion of an experimental bomb, taking the brunt of the blast himself. And now he changes into the unimaginably strong Incredible Hulk whenever he gets angry. All of these are mainstays of the comic world that have bled into mainstream culture, so that even people who don't read comics know who they are and what they're about. Even if the details might get muddled from time to time, the essence remains. This is because the characters' essences were driven home to us. This was deliberate and necessary to continue to sell books and merchandise. Because this comic relies so heavily on its audience already being familiar with the characters in it, very little effort is put into explicating the powers or gear that each member has. Sure, everyone knows who Batman is, but that's literally the only reason that he's in this book. His inclusion was a corporate act of pity, a mercy granted. Otherwise, the most famous character would have been the worst Green Lantern there ever was. I guarantee you, nobody walking down the street is gonna know who Guy Gardner is just by his name. We're graced with a brief mention of Mr. Miracle's mother box and a few of his escape artist tricks. We get to see Black Canary use her sonic scream once, and we don't see Blue Beetle do a goddamn thing. I'm honestly not sure how I'd react to the presentation and introduction of the Martian Manhunter in this, because it's difficult for me to think back to a time when I didn't know who he was, so it's hard to imagine what this experience must be like for someone coming in cold. To tell you the truth, I'm not sure I've done a great job explaining all of these characters and their powers for anyone who's not familiar with them. But there's a very good chance that that's because, for the seven issues we are and have been talking about, they barely use their powers. And I think that might be the key. For months while I was writing this, I was racking my brain trying not to justify, but simply to understand why this comic book has the legacy it does, why it holds such honored esteem. Every single review of this run, every single one, is positive. Not just positive, gushing. You'd think Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis hung the four-color newsprint moon. Because the convention up to this point had been, with a few exceptions, to focus on the powers instead of the people, when you remove the powers, whatever human characterizations there had been now become highlighted, however piss-poor they may be. And this was a novelty at the time, but it still only partially explains why this book has the reputation it does. And listen, I'm going to be real with y'all right now. I think that this book only holds the esteemed position it does because of inertia 
and feedback. Someone remembers that they heard this Justice League book was different from other comics they had read, and to be fair, it is. And then they find a review extolling the virtues of that very aspect that they only sort of half remembered. Then they decide to pick it up and read it. And they're primed to expect and receive this, quote, humanized portrayal. They walk away with the same opinion that was mimetically imposed upon them and repeat the process for others. Yes, you could say that this is just your basic, everyday word-of-mouth campaign for any story or product ever. But the reason this one is different is that the actual content of the book is, as I've shown in every single episode so far, directly counter to all the reviews that claim this book has personality and heart. It literally has neither of those things. It is built up from the negative side rather than the positive. It's simply that it's also lacking any interesting uses of superpowers, so it just seems like the characters are interesting. I hate this book, and I'm so excited to be done with it. Well, I'll never be done with it. It will always haunt me. So... What happens to the characters? Where do the Justice League, and then the Justice League International, then the Justice Leagues Europe and America, take us on this winding road we generously call a narrative? Well, there are two answers to this because it depends on where we stop. Giffen and DiMatteis finish their run at issue 60, leaving the small mullioned window to a world they've created to another decently capable writer, Dan Jurgens. Issue 60 is the 13th part of a massive crossover event between Justice League Europe and Justice League America called Breakdowns. I already promised I wouldn't spoil what happens to Maxwell Lord, but let's just say he's a focal point of this, and he's at his personal lowest in the beginning of this issue. But then he bounces right back to being terrible, because manipulative, corporate grifters are so lovable. And frankly, it doesn't matter what happens to the other characters, because most of them have long since left the League at this point. Okay, let's get to the stupid story. Hot off the heels of issue 6, in which Dr. Fate and the League confront the Grey Man in the town of Stone Ridge, which the Grey Man had recently transformed into a bizarre and alien analog of a human city. If you'll recall, Guy Gardner, the racist, sexist Green Lantern, was laid out unconscious on the conference room floor by a single blow from Batman as the culmination of a heated debate the two were having. This is why, as this issue, issue 7, opens upon an establishing shot of the League headquarters, we see a thin, wobbly speech balloon wafting up from the entrance, conveying Guy's watery, achy confusion as he regains consciousness. There's literally no way to tell how long he's been out because the linearity of time and its narrative usefulness is apparently an afterthought in this universe. Exactly one whole page is dedicated to Guy waking up, getting angry, realizing his power ring has gone missing, searching for it, and bumping his head again, somehow, under the legroom of the giant 80s computer terminal outside the monitor room. This won't be the last we see of Guy by any means, but when we do catch up with him next, it might not go as you're expecting it to. Back in Stone Ridge, well, back in the old cinema that used to be in Stone Ridge, Dr. Fate stands calmly, absorbing a tirade from the Gray Man, who is panicking and railing against the idea that he could never have won this fight he picked in the first place. They look dead to me. He screams at Dr. Fate that it's clear that he, the Gray Man, is the winner of this tete-a-tete. -tete. 
Dr. Fate in a response that essentially neuters whatever meager tension the last two issues may have established, corrects the gray man and claims you never had a chance. He then zaps the gray man to the plane of reality in which the Lords of Order, the ostensible employers of the gray man, reside. Again, we're presented with a shapeless blob to represent the Lords of Order, and I will just never understand the criminal lack of consideration for how unfitting this is. I mean, sure, it doesn't matter. Of all the things to take umbrage with in this book, this certainly ranks lower than, say, its ironic advocacy of war crimes, but it does still seriously irk me. There's some rather nonsensical back and forth between the Gray Man and the Lords of Order, but frankly, it doesn't matter, and I'm not going to waste your time with it because I know that's not what you're here for. What is important, however, is the glimpse we get into the logic behind the Lords of Order's actions and the insight that gives us into the gatekeeping we talked about in Episode 5. Academia is, you'll forgive me for slipping into communist ease here, a bourgeois center of power. That means that higher education, as it exists in the United States and the Eurocentric world, entrenches the kind of thinking that is in no way dangerous to the ruling class. It doesn't truly challenge the status quo. Sure, you'll hear a bunch of paranoid right-wingers call colleges hotbeds of liberalism. And, for the most part, they're right. Barring a few notable exceptions, colleges in the U.S. are quite liberal. They espouse liberal ideology. They reinforce a liberal status quo. If you haven't pieced it together, this does not pose a threat to any sort of power in the U.S. as it stands now. In fact, these hotbeds of liberalism receive funding specifically because they protect this way of thinking. This isn't necessarily acknowledged or even realized in most cases, and that's what makes it difficult to shed light on without seeming like a paranoid kook. But with a pinch of questioning and a dash of logic, we can come to a pretty clear conclusion about it. Do you believe that a rich person would donate money to their alma mater if that school hadn't helped them get where they were, or if that school suddenly adopted a staff-wide stance against the business model that made that person so wealthy? In many cases, you'll find that mega-donations to universities come from legacy families, i.e. families with generational wealth. Even if the social and business contacts made through that school didn't necessarily meaningfully increase the individual donor's wealth, there's a tacit understanding that the school will continue to teach classes that the donor approves of. Again, this isn't necessarily out in the open. It's very similar to two pillars of the Chomsky and Herman model of media criticism, those of media ownership and the tacit veto of the advertisers. A money source will dry up if the school, or newspaper as the example Chomsky and Herman use, behaves in a way counter to what they believe that source would approve of. And that puts an invisible but very solid constraint on the content of both the curriculum and the front page. On an even simpler note, do you believe that this rich alum would still donate out of the goodness of their heart if the government didn't offer substantial tax breaks for donations to universities? We're talking incentives so good that you can basically make a profit just by announcing that you're going to donate and fronting the money basically to yourself. It's called a charitable remainder trust, 
and it's a doozy. Essentially, it's a fund that a wealthy donor can set up as an eventual donation to an organization, in this case, a university. If a trustor sets up a CRT with appreciable stock, that is, stock that becomes more valuable, they can essentially get a yearly payout from the money generated as that stock increases in value. The larger the sum they put in the trust to begin with, the more money they're likely to receive over time as it becomes more valuable. When the trustor dies, the remaining money then goes to the trustee, so the university. In yet another kick in the teeth to us dirty pores, because this trust is irrevocable, it counts as lowering the value of the trustor's estate, which can reduce and, in some cases, even eliminate the estate tax, which, as my accountant friend who helped me out with all this noted, is pretty much the only wealth tax we have in the United States. To sum it up, just by promising to give the money to a university, a rich donor can draw a profit from the ever-increasing value of the stock they've set in the trust. They pay tax on that income, but it's canceled out by the fact that they're now paying less in estate taxes, so they're still coming out on top. They're making money just by having money and saying they'll give it away when they die. So how does this seep into the character of academia? I've already mentioned the implicit veto powers that donors have, but there's also a more direct control that capitalists wield over the schools. Let's hear a few quotes from Dr. G. William Domhoff's book, Who Rules America? Quote, Foundations provide a means by which wealthy people and corporations can, in effect, decide how their tax payments will be spent, for they are based on money that otherwise would go to the government in taxes. From a small beginning at the turn of the 20th century, they have become a very important factor in shaping developments in higher education and the arts, and they play a significant role in policy formation as well. He goes on to say, quote, In the early 1960s, the Ford Foundation spent $7 million over a three-year period developing ecology programs at 17 universities around the country, thereby providing the informational base and personnel infrastructure for efforts to control pesticides and industrial waste. I'm sure you can see the conflicts of interest. Not only has a foundation endowed with industrial Nazi automobile manufacturing money set up a huge network of influence dedicated to convincing generation after generation of students that the corporations responsible for the destruction of the planet are actually the best hope to save it, but also that the system that has allowed these corporations to continue that destruction is perfectly fine and dandy and well-suited to deal with the problem it creates and benefits from. Just as a fun aside, the Ford Foundation is also a major recipient of CIA money as part of the CIA's International Cultural Propaganda War. Sounds wild, I know, but there are multiple books about it and several BBC documentaries. Oh, and Kennedy's deputy director of the CIA, Richard Bissell, the guy who planned the Bay of Pigs invasion, was a, quote, consultant for the Ford Foundation for two years and maintained close contact during that time with Alan Dulles, the man who started the CIA. We can also look at the Lords of Order as a parallel or an analog to the ruling class that had so firmly taken root by the time this comic was written. I'm sure it wasn't meant to be, but hey, you never know what seeps into the psyche of a writer. The Lords of Order claim that the Grey Man has failed them 
and that he has abused the gift they bestowed upon him. Naturally, knowing what we know about him, it's easy to understand the gray man's incredulity and disbelief at this pronouncement. After all, why should he view an eternity of numb servitude as anything but hell? The real-world parallel comes in, you may have guessed, with the oft-pushed notion that capitalists, big businesses, are job creators. They bring employment to destitute parts of the world, which then secures for the indigent residents steady incomes and a collective sense of dignity because they're not part of the much maligned masses of the out of work. But if we've learned anything from at least the previous three episodes, it's that corporations will pay as little to their workers as they absolutely possibly can get away with forever. So the entire public relations campaign of job creation falls apart completely when you realize that these jobs, and indeed almost all jobs within a capitalist economy, aren't actually, or are at most barely, providing the workers with enough money to survive. You can drive through any factory town in the United States and see that the factory, and probably the Walmart, have provided a situation for these people that equates to, it's this or starve. At this point, it's not unfair to recast job creation as the expansion of a hostage situation. Considering this, is it any wonder then that the gray man sobs with relief as he accepts the Lords of Order's offer to blast him into magical oblivion? The Lords of Order basically threaten Dr. Fate with the same fate, and they admonish him for becoming too empathetic with the mortals when he refuses. Dr. Fate then returns the old theater and the rest of the league inside it to Stone Ridge. Blue Beetle makes a sex joke about the Black Canary, and we're off to a great start. Dr. Fate informs his compatriots that the Gray Man has been taken care of, but refuses to elaborate when Batman presses him for details. We're treated to another shot of the theater's marquee. Yep, it still says Timothy Dalton in The Living Daylights. Dr. Fate and the Creeper say their farewells to the Justice League and go about their merry ways. I have no idea where Dr. Fate is going, but I suppose we can assume that the Creeper is going to go back to the TV studio and assume his alter ego as vitriolic pundit Jack Ryder. As the League heads back to the Beetle Plane, the Black Canary declares that she's starving and suggests that they stop somewhere for a bite. And, true to the form we know and love, Batman absolutely shoots her down. Because a team fights best, when it's wan and underfit. The conversation wanders into more personal matters when Mr. Miracle, protesting against being assigned monitor duty when they return to the headquarters, reveals to the team that he is, in fact, married. These people have been a team for months, and Mr. Miracle's wife, Big Barda, a superhero herself, isn't exactly an unknown quantity in the caped social circles. So how is it that Batman, the world's greatest detective, has no idea who she is, nor that she's married to one of his team members. This is such sloppy writing that it drives me up the wall. If we have to include the joke, and it's JMD Mateus, so yes, we have to include the joke, at least have some callous prick like Blue Beetle or the Green Lantern be the one to be involved. Or, better yet, have it be Booster Gold, the man from the future who intensely studied this time period and its heroes before traveling back in time to be among them. Make it a plot point. How could he have missed that important detail? What else could he have missed? But no, 
Instead, they just have this conversation to end with a little gag about how strong Barda is in order to telegraph an argument between her and Mr. Miracle later. We come now to the first of our many cuts to the United Nations. And again, it's unclear if this is New York or Gotham. As I've mentioned before, the geography of the DC universe is, well, let's call it fluid. And Gotham, Metropolis, and New York City all serve similar functions based on whatever is necessary for any given story. The Martian Manhunter has shown up for a meeting with Maxwell Lord, who apparently has an office at the UN for some reason. He and Max have a confusing confrontation in which the Martian Manhunter refers to the events that Max has, quote, set in motion, which raises some questions. Remember, this series was the first appearance of Maxwell Lord ever. The audience doesn't even have the benefit of knowing the general gist of the character from any previous stories or universes. It will be your task to discover this new force. We're just expected to accept that this corporate tycoon has had all this sway and power without any explanation why. We're just meant to take his connections to the UN at face value. Most egregiously, we're not supposed to question the relationship he has with the League. It's made obvious that he's manipulating them, but what isn't clear is why they appear to be okay with it. He literally breaks into their headquarters while they're in Russia and sits around for hours waiting for them to get back. And when they do, he shoves Booster Gold, a complete stranger with no searchable background, into their laps and they just go along with it. They let Booster onto the team because he beats up some third-rate villains that Max has probably paid to be there, and then they're just cool with it when Lord announces himself as the official spokesman of the Justice League. And all of this is after Booster Gold reveals to them that Max has a secret plan for them. None of this makes any sense. It's clear what's being teed up here, but there's just hole after hole after hole. But maybe we shouldn't be so surprised. Maybe it's not that difficult, given the right context, to understand why Maxwell Lord, embodiment of corporate force that he is, was so easy to accept without a second thought, without question. Maybe there's a reason. I mentioned in episode three that U.S. media was responsible for the warped perception in the West of communist societies as lock-stepped ant people with no free will or individual spirit because the media grossly overplayed the role the distributive economic system of communism had on the people who participated in it. Because power was at least somewhat more equalized in communist societies, it behooved the propaganda machines of capitalist nations to subvert the perceptions of those economic gains by claiming losses elsewhere, however untrue and abstract those might be. Well, a perfect inversion also happened. If P, then Q. If a country's economic system is distributive, the U.S. media will denigrate those it enslaves. If not P, then not Q. If a country's economic system is accumulative, then the U.S. media will exalt those who do the enslaving. And particularly its success stories. But this didn't just happen naturally. This isn't an inevitable state of being. We need to talk about the shift in power that made way for this. We need to revisit a subject I teased in the very first episode. 
we need to talk about power accrual and public relations, wealth and wheel. We need to talk about the rise of the business elite. In 1971, the head of the Education Committee for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Eugene B. Sidner, received a memorandum from a friend and colleague, future Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell. The memo opened with a rather dire and expansive statement. Quote, No thoughtful person can question that the American economic system is under broad attack. End quote. Already dubious in its credibility, the memo more or less equates communism with fascism two sentences later, so you know it's going to be a wild ride. The memo served as a call to arms for the business class to resist the encroaching chaos of perceived left-wing anti-corporate public opinion. This wasn't exactly a wild supposition since then-Congressperson Ralph Nader was at his zenith at this point, riding the high of the success of his book, Unsafe at Any Speed, which tore into the U.S. auto industry and took them to task for knowingly producing vehicles with lethal flaws. The implications of and subsequent extrapolations from these revelations sent shockwaves through the consciousness of the U.S. public. Still, though, even Nader was a capitalist, however vociferous he was against corporate power. So, definitionally, he could never have been an existential threat. Regardless, the Powell memo was drafted, and we've been suffering from its ramifications ever since. Although the effects of the memo are rather arguable and indeed pretty impossible to pin directly to it, it serves as a useful locus for the coalescence of the corporate class. Historian Rick Perlstein, in a reference to a French revolutionary sect, referred to the corporate leaders who began to take action to wrest more power from the government as the boardroom Jacobins. In a moderately funny coincidence, the Powell memo was distributed in 1972, and the French Jacobins were formed in 1792. Following the lead of the Powell memo, the United States Chamber of Commerce began to implement the aforementioned public relations campaign to sell, quote, the American way to the American people. This comprised a series of seemingly organic movements that were, in fact, organized and paid for by specific companies with stakes in the various issues. For those of you unfamiliar with this, it may amuse you to learn that this tactic is referred to as astroturfing, a fake grassroots movement. In 1975, the chamber, already knee-deep in its role as Apologia Ministry for Capitalism, appointed Richard Lesher to be its president. This was a game-changer. Under Lesher, the PR push became much more profound, utilizing the latest in mass media technology to proselytize an electric vision of free market fantasy. This was the battle for the hearts and minds of the United States public. Well, mostly the white public, who still overwhelmingly held power at all levels of public life. To give you some idea of the beginnings of the power shift from people to business, Two main boogeymen that Lesher would stump against were OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA. Two government bodies specifically meant to protect the well-being of people from business. And he began winning. winning, 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 winning. 
it would be short-sighted to blame only the Chamber of Commerce, of course. There was also the Business Roundtable, a pro-industry lobbying group in D.C., and one of its most effective and well-connected members, a man named Charles Walker. According to Sidney Blumenthal in his book The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, Walker is one of the, quote, most important connections between big business and the Reagan camp. Again, in 1975, big year, huh? Walker was appointed to head up the American Council on Capital Formation, a think tank of complete monsters that is still around today and is honestly probably even worse now than it was then, because everything is worse now than it was then. Anyway, the ACCF was representing more than 340 businesses by 1984. Their main goal was the defanging of labor protections and business regulation, of course. Although they began substantially counting victories under Carter, Reagan would be a boon beyond their wildest dreams. I will conquer the sea, the air, the earth, the universe. Reagan set about directly responding to the impact of Nader's pro-consumer movement, ironically, then known as consumerism when it referred to government philosophy. Seriously, it's overwhelming when researching this just article after article about it for almost any given year in the 80s. Here's a good quote from an article in the New York Times on January 23, 1982, titled, Reagan's Reagan's drive to cut rules. Impact impact depends depends on on industry. In the belief that the biggest problem of consumers is too much government, the Reagan administration has spent an active year giving regulatory relief to business. Further, the article states, the greatest source of regulatory relief for business was probably not the dropping of rules, but a kind of de facto deregulation resulting from reduced enforcement. Vice President Bush's group's year-end report says, a variety of administrative actions have been taken to eliminate needless confrontation and harassment in regulatory enforcement. For example, it says, The Occupational Safety and Health Administration has eliminated inspections without cause, concentrating inspections on facilities with above-average injury rates or complaints of unsafe conditions. The business savings of reduced enforcement is incalculable and was not estimated by the task force. Among its major initiatives, the administration hastened the decontrol of oil prices, dropped a requirement for automatic seatbelts or airbags on new automobiles, and moved to open some wilderness areas to exploration for gas and oil. It's clear to anyone that these moves of the government were specifically designed to shift power from labor to capital. But it's also necessary to view these tactics not just as labor versus capital, but as corporations versus government in a titanic struggle for dependence with an NTS at the end, dependence, not, you know. The PR campaign for socially conscious and caring corporations could not have happened at a more advantageous time for the ghouls pushing it. Again, we come back to 1975, and this one's a big one. The city of New York ran out of money. That's the short version of it. And listen, all U.S. presidents, every single one, have been oafish buffoons, all of them. But one of the most buffoonish of all the oafs of office, Gerald Ford, happened to be president when this occurred. And beginning a legacy that would only intensify from then until now, he refused to spend government money to help people living in the country he presided over. As you see, I'm busy. Be gone! This is nicely summed up by an 
instantly memorable October 29th, 1975 headline from the New York Daily News, which some of you might be familiar with. Ford to City. Drop dead. In essence, New York City had spent years borrowing from creditors to pay for its social services and programs. Thanks to Ford's stubborn refusal to bail the city out with federal funds, the city had to basically turn control of its budgetary decisions over to various unelected committees made up entirely of the city's business elite and corporate monsters itching to claw more power from the government and the people. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because even though this is incredibly important for our narrative today, it's also very, very complex. If, however, you're interested in this part of the story, I highly recommend a book by Kim Phillips Fine called Fear City, New York's Fiscal Crisis and the Rise of Austerity Politics. It's so much more engaging than any book about city accounting has any right to be. I sincerely doubt that Phillips Fine is a communist, and the book only ever goes so far as to tacitly advocate for a return to New Deal-type social programs. But at least that's sort of a step in the right direction in our dialectical struggle to overthrow capitalism. And the book itself doesn't shy away from criticizing liberal folding to corporate pressure. In fact, here are a couple of nice direct quotations referring to New York's response to this fiscal crisis and the spineless and immediate realignment of the so-called liberal elite. Quote, Key to the rise of this new city was the rejection of an earlier style of social politics. Public hospitals, free tuition, cheap transit, and a city that ran in the interests of the working class belonged to a past best forgotten. Now, in the parlance of these times, New Yorkers had to learn to help themselves, and they would do so by relying on favors from the rich. And it goes on to say, quote, The Beam administration's new program for economic development, released in December 1976, likewise represented a startling turnaround of the city's previous priorities. The program, Mayor Beam said, represented, quote, the city's commitment to improving the business climate and its recognition that job creation must be at the very top of its list of priorities, end quote. Aha, job creation. Where have we heard that one before? And now, probably the most damning quote of them all. In this reframing of urban liberalism, support for business was the central goal. Without the private sector, after all, there would be no wealth to support the public. Economic growth was the answer to the fiscal crisis, and this could only be achieved, apparently, by showing corporations that the city would do anything to win the investments it needed. Being a good liberal, in other words, meant advocating for business. So, there you have it a simultaneous and correlated growth in power of the corporate class and shriveling of the power of the government. The two are necessarily at odds for one simple reason. One is profit-driven and the other is not. I would have said that one is profit-driven and the other is people-driven, but a capitalist government, no matter how liberal, can never be people-driven. As we've seen in previous episodes, it exists only to protect the interests of capital. Following our introduction to the absurd fact that Max Lord has an office at the UN, 
we're made to suffer through a tense conversation between him and the Martian Manhunter about such mundane topics as Max's office. It's truly thrilling stuff. There's supposed to be a big reveal that Mr. Miracle's sidekick Oberon has been in secret back-channel talks with Lord. I recognize that Mr. Miracle is not exactly one of the archetypal characters we talked about earlier, so it's 100% understandable if you don't know who Mr. Miracle's sidekick is, especially since this is literally the first time in the whole podcast that I've mentioned him. This one's on me. But really, even though Mr. Miracle might be my favorite character of this whole Justice League lineup, he, like all the rest of them, is only shown to be callow and uninteresting, and his sidekick, an angry middle-aged little person, is hardly any better. We're supposed to remember that Oberon was introduced in the very first scene of the very first issue as Mr. Miracle's showbiz manager, but nothing ever comes of that because, again, none of these characters are made unique or memorable in any way except for how much they suck and how mean they are to each other. Continuing with our deep dive into Mr. Miracle's lore, the next scene is the one that I mentioned was being telegraphed by that baffling conversation in which Batman revealed that he didn't realize Mr. Miracle was married to another famous superhero. While the Martian Manhunter and Oberon are no doubt exchanging flaccid barbs with Maxwell Lord and Batman, Black Canary, Blue Beetle, Booster Golden Captain Marvel are off doing God knows what, Mr. Miracle is stuck at the League headquarters on monitor duty meaning that he's just sitting around and staring at a computer waiting for something to happen. Here, we see the fourth of the four women in this entire book that have actual speaking parts beyond being throwaway gags. Big Barda, the love of Mr. Miracle's life. Right now, this super strong former commander of Darkseid's Female Fury's Special Forces is in a mustard yellow sweater, red bike shorts, and bunny slippers. It would be funny if the scene itself weren't so painful. Barda is shown here as an irritable, shrewish housewife. And she's not, she's just not that. But you wouldn't know that if you weren't familiar with the comic. I know I keep going back to this well, but it's one of the biggest sources of gripe for me when it comes to this book. Without the foreknowledge that Barda is a gallant and compassionate hero and an independent, autonomous being, you're essentially forced to conclude that this petty, nagging version of her is the real version and not just a joke for a knowledgeable audience. She's complaining about how she doesn't get to see Scott, Mr. Miracle, enough anymore, which is a fair complaint for a significant other that you love, but her method of expressing this discontent is what I take umbrage with here. She also mentions that Scott didn't consult her before joining the Justice League, an organization that will put his life in danger at least once a month. This is also a perfectly fine argument. It's just a shame that the only glimpse of her we get is an angry, unkempt nag with super strength. I should clarify that she smashes their home phone to little plastic pieces when she hangs up on him. Oh, I should also clarify that people used to have home telephones. They just sat there on the wall and, you know what, never mind. This is another example of a power dynamic that is weirdly present and absent in this book simultaneously. And honestly, I don't have a lot to tie it to, because while it's very important, the historical oppression of women isn't something that this story provides adequate opportunity to discuss. <laughs> there simply aren't a lot of women here. We've covered just about every instance of male members of the League being shitheads to Black Canary, but the historical significance is probably pretty easy to expound upon. Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus were two early 30s white men who were relatively successful in a field dominated by white men. Their work environment, however contemporaneously progressive in its ideas, 
simply didn't expose them to all that many women peers. And this will color just about any endeavor. You know, I, I feel like I've been doing so much reading and referencing of liberal academic works that I need to reestablish my communist bona fides. So let's talk about the fact that there were relatively few women in Giffen and DiMatteis's workplace. I say relatively because to be fair, there were women in the comics industry and probably more than there were in other creative fields apart from possibly novel fiction. Jeanette Kahn, in particular, whose voice you've all heard at the tail end of each intro theme, was a powerful and influential publisher and then president and then editor-in-chief for DC for decades. Specifically, though, I'd like to just quickly put a bug in your ear, now that you're on board with the fact that all labor under capitalism is exploitative, about how, quote, women in the workplace became a right-wing canard. And, surprise, surprise, it started in this very era we've been talking about. In 1982, Johnson Controls, a U.S.-based industry giant that specializes in all things mechanistic, began to deny women applying for jobs on their car battery production line unless they could prove to the company that they were, in fact, sterile and thus could not have children. This was because it was widely known that the amount of lead exposure involved in the production of car batteries could very easily cause severe birth defects and complications. According to Laura Briggs in her book, How All Politics Became Reproductive Politics, prior to the Civil Rights Act 18 years earlier, Johnson Controls just wouldn't hire women in a story. Obviously, the 1964 legislation changed that. Beginning in 1982, however, a protracted legal battle between Johnson Controls and labor and feminist organizations grappled over the idea of whether or not workplace protection policies for women only were or were not a social good. Nine years later, under the first Bush administration, the courts ruled that women-only protection policies were illegal. This was not a win for the feminists nor the labor movement. Thanks to the court's decree, it was now legal for Johnson Controls to expose all of their workers to lead. This is not to say that women somehow ruined everything, nor that the automobile workers' unions are any more or less effectual than any other union. This is to indicate once again that an established system like the fledgling Phoenix from the Ashes of the New Deal corporatocracy that the U.S. had become in the 1980s has multiple tools at its disposal to expand, solidify, and maintain that power. It will use common liberal bromides such as diversity and equal representation against well-meaning people pushing for those virtues. It will not be until we as a society, as a communist society, having divested of the profit motive and the capitalist ways we organize our production of goods and services, can we then even conceive of a society in which all genders are equal? And with that, we might even begin to progress to a stage where gender is no longer a norm, nor even an expectation. Lisa Vogel's masterpiece, Marxism and the Oppression of Women, is a fantastic thesis on production, reproduction, and the capitalist limitations on both. I definitely, definitely recommend it. Back to the comic. The story finally almost sort of takes us back to whatever nonsensical thing is happening with Guy Gardner. As the camera pulls back to leave Mr. Miracle alone with his trembling fear of the woman he loves, we see Guy's boots in the foreground, indicating that he's still conked out from the apparent blow to the head he took under the computer desk while looking for his power ring. Cut to Hal Jordan, 
the Green Lantern who had been talking with Maxwell Lord in the previous issue. Zipping through the sky on his way to the League headquarters to apparently have a long talk with Guy. Hal is considering Guy's behavior and how it will have to change if, quote, these new plans for the League pan out, if they get the new status Maxwell Lord is pushing for, end quote. We'll see what that means a little later, but suffice it to say, it's very dumb, and I have a bomb to drop on you about it when we do get there. Mr. Jordan is rightly confused as to why Gardner was ever allowed in the Justice League, or even into the Green Lantern Corps for that matter. I'm with him on this one, for all the vile reasons I've already enumerated in every single previous episode of this podcast. Hal's approach is picked up by the headquarters security system, so Mr. Miracle at the monitor sees him coming a mile away. As Mr. Miracle fantasizes that the OGGL might be about to take the POS GL far, far away, we see over his shoulder that Gardner has finally woken up and is on his feet, steadying himself against the monitor room's doorframe. Surely, we're in for some top-tier humor coming up. Before we have our sides split viciously open by the imminent hilarity, we're yanked back to the UN office of Maxwell Lord. And listen, I looked. The UN building in real life does not house any corporate offices. Sure, you could argue that capitalist governments and the offices of their representatives are just extensions of corporate influence, but I doubt that's the incisive political commentary that Giffen and DiMatteis are going for here. Lord is trying to sell the Martian Manhunter on the new status of the League that Hal Jordan had mentioned just a page earlier. The Manhunter challenges him on his use of the word, our, but Lord sidesteps it by assuring the hero that the success of the League is equally important to both of them. The Manhunter asserts to Lord that this is impossible and explains how integral the Justice League has been to his life ever since coming to Earth. He expresses his intent not to let Lord damage the League in any way, to which Oberon, the cynical, money-hungry sidekick of Mr. Miracle, objects. He vouches for Lord and reassures the giant green alien that he, Oberon, would never do anything to hurt Scott Free, Mr. Miracle. He pleads with the Manhunter to trust that he wouldn't be working with Lord if he weren't absolutely convinced of how important this new status will be. The Manhunter begins to cave, and he accedes to Lord that the validity of the idea isn't in question. But he's apprehensive that the UN won't oblige. Lord quells his doubts by assuring that he has connections. It's all quite mysterious, but what makes it even more intriguing, and I'm using that term generously, of course, is how this whole conversation is presented. Each panel of the page alternates the perspective between being in the office itself with Lord Oberon and the Martian Manhunter, and the same office being shown instead on some sort of monitor screen. We have no idea who might be watching, nor how they might have gotten their cameras in Lord's office, although we can assume that this might be the connections Lord was referring to. But the final panel shows the image being switched off. Over the now blank screen, a yellow speech balloon with a computery looking font appears with the word excellent in it. Again, I won't spoil anything for those who want to continue reading, but it's clear so far that Lord is somehow in cahoots with whatever entity this might be, and, as many of you can imagine by now, plus I think I mentioned it a while back, this will be used to basically divert any blame from Maxwell Lord as a slimy corporateer who is definitely 100% the real bad guy of the story. So why isn't Max the bad guy? 
We've seen already how business people ran campaigns to bring the government to its knees and cement more power for themselves. And we've touched upon how they set about convincing the public that that's a good thing. But what about the individual entrepreneurs? How did they become idolins of heroic daring? To quote a 1989 article from the Washington Post, quote, In one sense, the entrepreneurial boom of the 1980s was a demographic necessity. With most big companies retrenching and government pinched, the only place where jobs could be created were small, fast-growing firms. The entrepreneurial revolution also was a political expression of baby boomers who glorified the individual and distrusted the corporate business elite, end quote. As an aside, it should be noted that, just as Marx predicted, this explosion of small firms would necessarily only lead to the further strengthening of larger companies. In The Rule of Capital Over Labor and the Motives of the Capitalist from Das Kapital, Marx states, Scratch my back, hold on. Quote, If the big capitalist wants to squeeze out the smaller capitalist, he has all the advantages over him which the capitalist has as a capitalist over the worker. The larger size of his capital compensates him for the smaller profits, and he can even bear temporary losses until the smaller capitalist is ruined and he finds himself freed from this competition. In this way, he accumulates the small capitalist's profits. End quote. This is hand-in-hand with what I mentioned in episode 4 about large corporations being able to weather the costs of regulations more easily than mom-and-pop companies or startups. After the continuation of the meeting in Lord's office that I still can't get over is at the UN, we're treated to an establishing shot outside my very least favorite building in the whole world, the White House. I know, because not only does it say it's the White House, but it's also a big picture of the White House that stretches all the way across the page. They really don't want you to miss that it's the White House. The speech balloons coming from the White House indicate that there are at least two people speaking to each other in the White House. Did I mention that this is the White House and that the scene is taking place in it, the White House? Anyway, so we're outside the White House and someone inside the White House is telling someone else inside the White House what a pleasure it is to meet them. That second person inside the White House gently reminds the first person inside the White House that the two of them have met several times before, although it's unclear whether or not it was in the White House. We mercifully cut to the interior of the home of the president. The man, the myth, the legend, the reason we're all here today, Ronald Wilson Reagan, sits behind the desk in the Oval Office and gazes in appropriate awe at Superman, the only being truly worthy of ruling over us all. The two of them are clearly, if obliquely, discussing the proposal Max was just rattling on about with the Martian Manhunter. Obviously, we're given no more details than previously because this is supposed to be a big secret. We'll see at the end why uh, it wasn't. All right, all right, I'll tell you. What stands out about this scene is the writer's very clear intent to make a joke about Reagan's mental health at the time. On November 5th, 1994, Ronald Reagan released an open letter revealing that he'd been battling Alzheimer's. He begins the letter with the following... My fellow Americans, I have recently been told that I am one of the millions of Americans who will be afflicted with Alzheimer's disease. Casting himself as part of a group is pretty rich coming from a president 
who scrapped Jimmy Carter's Mental Health Systems Act, which would have required states to spend certain amounts of money on mental health treatment options for their citizens. This gutting was part of a major budget massacre I mentioned all the way back in Episode 1, the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, which is the lodestone of Reagan's initial divestment of power from the government and two corporations. As we've seen, and will see, it always, always, always comes back to this. The shifting of influence to an undemocratically appointed, or even self-appointed, power structure. But anyway, as Marjorie Hunter put it in the New York Times in 1981, the Mental Health Systems Act, quote, was doomed because of the administration's insistence on ending federal control of several health and education programs by establishing block grants. The grants were designed to allow the states to spend federal aid with few strings attached, end quote. Now, few strings attached is certainly correct, if a bit innocuous. Let's take a look at possibly the most famous and definitely the most relevant block grant in U.S. history, the Alcohol, Drug Abuse, and Mental Health Services block grant that replaced the Mental Health Systems Act. And oh, hey, look at that. It's from 1981. Curious. This grant was specifically designed to gradually remove federal oversight from the use of the funds. To quote a June 1990 issue of the Congressional Research Service publication, quote, The law establishes a method for states to distribute block grant allotments between mental health and substance abuse services. Under the original 1981 enactment, all of a state's allotment from the block grant in fiscal year 1982 had to be spent to support mental health services and substance abuse services in the same proportion that federal funds were awarded to support such services in the state in the relevant base years, the years the allocation formula was based on. In fiscal year 1983, 95% of the state's allotment, and in fiscal year 1984, 85% of the state's allotment had to be obligated in this manner. The 1984 amendments made permanent a percentage of 75% that states have to allocate in this manner. States may exercise discretion over the remaining 25%. So we see that year after year, the federal government has less and less control over the funds. This resulted, naturally, in conflicting interests getting hold of the money and having the power to spend it at their discretion. Needless to say, this discretion did not align with the interests of the people the funds were meant to support. Even today, you can witness the aftershocks of the Budget Omnibus Reconciliation Act in just about any downtown. Any poor bastard walking down the street and muttering to themselves or taking the very understandable escape route of hard drugs in what they hope is a private enough place could have been helped in a society where the distribution of funds was truly based on people's needs and not at the whims of the powerful. Remember, as we saw in the last episode, welfare capitalism allocates funds to support the needs of the ruling business class. That is to say, it furnishes underpaid workers just enough so that they can get by on the legally mandated minimum that their employers pay. There is no reforming this system. The very mechanisms that make capitalism capitalism are the reasons it's violent and destructive. It's not just the actions of certain people misusing such a system. It's tactically important, however, 
to understand that this rhetoric of redistribution of power has also been used by these certain powerful people to justify these very actions, particularly when it comes to defanging the federal government. So what's the purpose of this? Why remove federal control of government money only to then give the states power to oversee it? Give more and more diffuse and opaque bodies the power to manage federal funds, and the less and less public oversight and scrutiny you'll have of that management. If this isn't a powerful argument for why a capitalist government exists only to bolster capitalism, I don't know what is. But there's also a much simpler reason for this shift in policy, one that should be obvious to anyone with any knowledge of the United States' greatest sins. It's the United States' worst-kept secret. It's a lie that is at once wholly acknowledged by everyone and yet fully embraced by those who believe they benefit from it. If any of you grew up in the middle of the 20th century or know anything about U.S. politics, I'm sure you've seen this coming from a mile away. The lie, of course, is the rhetorical mantra of states' rights. And the truth, in all its alluring and atavistic simplicity, is racism. But I'll have to leave you to research the Southern strategy on your own time, unfortunately. We've still got 23 pages of comic book left before we can say goodbye to this horrible, horrible story. So back to it. We're spared from too much actual Reagan time, thank goodness. After the brief scene with Superman, we find ourselves flying alongside Captain Marvel, who's still engaged in the internal struggle he began to have back in issue five. He's fully recovered from the effects of the Gray Man's mental attacks. However, he's continuing to have second thoughts about being part of the League. As I mentioned two episodes ago, I'm proud of this fictional 10-year-old for having the maturity to realize he's not mature enough to be in the world's uh, greatest superhero team. Isn't he cute, Stanley? Cutest thing you ever saw. Oh, all right, all right. I'm not sure why this storyline is happening, though. I think it's because DC was preparing to launch a Captain Marvel solo series, but it really didn't do well at all. Regardless, Captain Marvel clearly doesn't want to be here anymore, and he will be leaving at the end of this issue. And no one will miss him because he sucks. In the middle of his quandary, he lands at the cave entrance to the League headquarters and thinks to himself that he'll need to carefully consider this over some milk and Twinkies. And we see a sort of an interesting artifact of older comics here. In the thought bubble, the word Twinkies is in quotation marks. You will find that a lot of brand name products were referred to this way back then. It would have been the same if he'd mentioned Oreos or Super Soakers, but possibly not Ford or Chevy. Chew on that. Anyway, I'm not sure exactly why that was the convention back then, but it certainly isn't that way now. Is this further evidence of the corporate branding oil stain upon the driveway of American identity? Probably. And the fact that I so easily slipped into a car-related metaphor for it probably goes a long way in explaining why Ford and Chevy were already ingrained in the parlance by the 80s. But I digress again. Captain Marvel has arrived at the headquarters to find Mr. Miracle and the Hal Jordan Green Lantern deep in conversation. He immediately hopes that they're getting rid of Guy Gardner, but he dismisses that idea right away, believing they could never be that lucky. Again, why is he still here if even the credulous child dislikes him? Over the course of some casual banter, Hal reveals to Marvel that there are going to be some changes to the League. Captain Marvel is understandably upset to have been kept out of the loop, but he's more floored by Hal's response when he asks Hal how his lecture to Guy Gardner went. Hal tells him that Guy took it really, really well. 
Marvel is frankly stunned. Mr. Miracle then decides to show Captain Marvel the apparent changes that have come over Guy since hitting his head, because this is the silliest goddamn Justice League comic ever, and that's saying a whole lot. They find Guy in the monitor room reading Cosmo and quietly singing Debbie Boone's 1977 hit You Light Up My Life to himself. Not sure if the Cosmo reference is a sensitive red gay joke, but I'm prepared to be charitable here, so I won't assume it is. The heroes who have witnessed this transformation are all agog and apprehensive of it, not least of its permanency. We leave the scene on a frankly terrifying close-up of Guy puckering his lips to sing the Carpenter's 1970 hit, Close to You. Moving on. Somehow, Jack Ryder has gotten back to Gotham, I'm assuming it ever says, and is broadcasting again from behind his studio desk, introducing a segment called Jack Ryder's Hot Seat. He's back to his old ways of denigrating the Justice League for all his audience to hear. This time, he's reporting on the events at Stone Ridge, Vermont from the previous two episodes. There is absolutely no sense of what amount of time has passed, nor do we hear from his producer or assistant or whoever that was out cold and ostensibly, maybe, helped by Captain Marvel before Marvel was captured and possessed by the Gray Man. Guess he's dead, who cares? One can only imagine the 80s-style news drawl that Ryder is putting on as he narrates over footage of the now fully normalized Stone Ridge. It would seem that Ryder has had time to get B-roll and to pester locals for interviews that get him nothing. I don't pay you to sleep. Go out and get that story. But that's not important, since the Gray Man's apparently worldwide onslaught has had no newsworthy effect, apart from it made this town look weird and people don't want to talk about it yet. The footage ends and is replaced on the TV screen with a casually cross-legged Jack Ryder sitting in a revolving interview chair and lamenting about the news that the League is, quote, seeking international status. Again, I have some thoughts about that that I'll get to soon. Across the stage from Ryder, and presumably in the aforementioned hot seat, is a familiar face. Brought into the studio to discuss the international ramifications of the new, apparently possibly government-sanctioned status of the superhero team. Colonel Ruman Harjavti, the dictatorial leader of the Middle Eastern nation of Bialya, who sort of had a run-in with the Justice League in issues 2 and 3 when they were dealing with three alien superheroes who had only come to Earth to help us get rid of our nukes. Because the incredibly white and American writers assume that their most likely incredibly white and American readers will think this is hilarious, Harjavti appears to have gone on camera without a translator or any knowledge of English past, it is being my pleasure here to be Mr. Writer, which he repeats with a smile after each increasingly frustrated prompt from Writer. Fundamentally racist. It's racist to its core. Thank you, Justice League International. But why is this here? Why is this included at all? What was going on in the Middle East and in the U.S. media coverage of the Middle East that made characters such as Harjavti so realistic, if we're to believe the hype? In episode two, I touched upon the subject of the U.S. media's treatment of Iran, and I believe that this can be expanded to explain the general view of the wacky Middle East that trickles down into this god-awful Justice League comic. Since the 1979 revolution, the U.S. media coverage of Iran has been absolutely brutal. There's a reason for this. It's retaliation. It's retribution. It's punishment. 
1951, Iran elected Mohammad Mossadegh as prime minister. Although not himself a communist, for two years he was a staunch defender of the rights to their oil and resources. Then, in 1953, President Dwight Eisenhower, the man who so warned against the military-industrial complex the night before Kennedy was sworn in, sought to test out a new proposed strategy of intervention. He had been approached by his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, who, along with his brother Alan Dulles, the head of the recently established Central Intelligence Agency, had an interesting idea. Instead of an outright invasion to overthrow Mossadegh, why not try simply bribing Iranian officials and artificially inflating grassroots anti-Mossadegh movements to foment a revolution from the inside? This is a gross oversimplification, but it's basically what happened. In fact, the plan worked so well that the CIA has been doing it over and over ever since. This is where I'd queue up that bit with the goofy elevator music and do a bunch of cuts where I list every single international coup d'etat that can be laid squarely at the feet of the CIA, but the song isn't long enough. The key to understanding why Iran has been so thoroughly demonized, even to the point of being vilified more than many communist countries, is two-pronged, apart from the general veneer of racism. It's because of money and geography. And let's be clear, it's never been about the rights of Iranians. Never ever. Prior to the 1979 revolution, Iran under Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi had been the United States' chief client in the Middle East, or West Asia as we should be calling it. We weren't just selling them weapons. We were selling them lots of weapons. To give you some idea, consider this. In 1976, Governor Jimmy Carter, soon to be president, argued in a debate against then-President Gerald Ford that it wasn't right that Iran was getting new U.S.-made fighter jets before the U.S. military was. Not that anyone should have those fighter jets. Fuck those fighter jets. But Iran was that important of a client for our gigantic industrial war machine. So, in 1979, when the soon-to-be ex-President Carter imposed an arms embargo on Iran after 52 American citizens were taken hostage in Tehran, that made a lot of fat wallets mad at both Carter and Iran. Another key to understanding why Iran is the big bad is simply that tons and tons of oil has to flow through the Persian Gulf. And the control of that was basically ripped from the US and several European governments' proxy control. Because of this devastating loss to the extension of the Eurocentric power base, Iran was now cemented as persona non grata for that world. Remember, this blow was so heavy that the US even supported the, at the time, communist-backed Iraq in the Iran-Iraq War from 1980 to 1988. So Iran was actively the opposition at the time this comic was published. I can't overstate, however, the importance of something I just mentioned. It would come to be known, of course, as the hostage crisis. No other event in the conjoined history of Iran and the United States has further influenced Iran's treatment in the US media. 
It's not an understatement to say that Iran has never been treated fairly since. In November of 1979, 52 American diplomats were taken hostage and held captive in the American embassy in Tehran by an extremist faction of Iranian revolutionaries known as the Muslim student followers of the Imam's line, or colloquially, as the Muslim students. They were held for 444 days until January 20th, 1981. As an aside, it should be noted with certainly no hint of insinuation or accusation that January 20th, 1981 is the very same day that our number one supervillain, Ronald Reagan, was sworn into office. Now, there are some who would point out that Ronald Reagan's campaign was staffed with folks who tended to the unscrupulous side of the spectrum. There are some who might remind us that Reagan's campaign manager, Bill Casey, was the first person ever to conceive of the idea of tax shelters when he was a lawyer in the American Great Depression. Those same individuals might also gently prod that this less-than-savory character would go on to be one of the first heads of the secret intelligence branch of the Office of Strategic Services, the intelligence-gathering initiative established in World War II that would become the Central Intelligence Agency. A few may broach the delicate subject that the role of the secret intelligence branch of the Office of Strategic Services specialized in Middle Eastern intelligence. To those people who have so irresponsibly considered that a man who had a particular knowledge of the weaknesses and pressure points of Middle Eastern politics might use this to fulfill his responsibilities to make sure his employer becomes the most powerful person in the Western Hemisphere, you should be ashamed of yourselves. How dare you couple that with the fact that the news media had to decide whether or not to show this man's candidate's inauguration address or cover the story of the hostages being released. Surely you should know that this man, who paid parliamentarians and street gangs to influence the political reality in Iran in the 1950s, wouldn't stoop so low as to do it again. Anyway, there were also the more local ramifications of Iran's revolution. Its neighbors could hardly fail to notice. One, in particular, took a greater place on the world stage after a massive pro-Iran protest in its capital, Tripoli, in December of 1979. Although Iran and its doings serve as an excellent spoke for the wheel of events and relations in the Middle East, if we are to use this comic as a window into the era, it might serve us better to take a closer look at Libya and Muammar Gaddafi, since I believe that Ruman Harjavti is almost a one-to-one -one analog. It's easy to understand why Gaddafi, or at least the pale imitation before us, would be depicted here as being on the sillier end of the sinister spectrum. As I mentioned in episode two, the US media wasn't always sure what to do with him because he A, wasn't always immediately recognizable as a socialist, and B, because he was also one of the few even remotely socialist, quote, dictators, who actually denounced communism and rhetorically rebuked the Soviet Union. Although generally cast as an enemy of the US, Libya was nonetheless a valued client for our weapons industry, and this puzzled our media machine. Although this didn't stop the press from printing all sorts of horrible things about Libya, it should be noted that, as with so many other international relations, this one was actually characterized fairly accurately 
by a U.S. government report that was so unhelpful, we never hear about it. Here's what the Federal Research Division had to say about Gaddafi in, oh, hey, look, 1987. Now, why does that year mean something to me? Quote, At the onset of the Revolutionary Command Council rule, Gaddafi and his associates insisted that their government would not rest on individual leadership, but rather on collegial decision-making. However, Gaddafi's ascetic but colorful personality, striking appearance, energy, and intense ideological style soon created an impression of Gaddafi as dictator and the balance of the RCC, the Revolutionary Command Council, as little more than his rubber stamp. This impression was inaccurate, and although some members were more pragmatic, less demonstrative, and less ascetic than Gaddafi, the RCC showed a high degree of uniformity in political and economic outlook and in dedication. Fellow RCC members were loyal to Gaddafi as group leader, observers believed, not because of bureaucratic subservience to his dictatorial power, but because they were in basic agreement with him and with the revolutionary Arab nationalist ideas that he articulated, end quote. It should be noted that in Libya prior to 1969, only 25% of the Libyan population could read. Under Gaddafi, that rate shot up to 75%. Also under Gaddafi, housing was a natural human right. Education, healthcare, and even electricity were free. The great man-made river in Libya is the largest and most successful irrigation project in the history of the world. It supplies nearly 70% of all fresh water to Libya and has been responsible for a huge increase in average lifespan and well-being. Of course, in 2011, then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton devised and executed a strategy to remove the incredibly popular leader of the country in a bid to destabilize the region to allow for the introduction of capital investment. To quote an article from CGTN titled The Tragedy of a Western-Led Intervention, How Libya Became Hell on Earth, quote, after the seven-month-long NATO-led air campaign that leveled apartments, medical clinics, and caused massive civilian casualties, the country quickly fell to a vicious cycle of violence, reminiscent of the aftermath of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Instead of democracy, anarchy became the new norm as thugs, radicalized Islamic insurgents, ruled the streets. Instead of respect for human rights, the country has experienced a humanitarian crisis as desperate refugees fled and flooded Europe and its surrounding regions. Instead of economic growth, there is a growing slave trade, where young men are being auctioned off as commodities in open slave markets." End quote. No matter what individuals or countries in the Middle East have done in response to U.S. aggression or otherwise, it's important to remember the words of the preeminent scholar on Western notions of the Orient, Edward Said. Quote, Neither the term Orient nor the concept of the West has any ontological stability. Each is made up of human effort, partly affirmation, partly identification of the other. That these supreme fictions lend themselves easily to manipulation and the organization of collective passion has never been more evident than in our time, when the mobilizations of fear, hatred, and disgust, and the resurgence of self-pride and arrogance 
much of it having to do with Islam and the Arabs on one side and we Westerners on the other, are very large-scale enterprises. He goes on to say, in reference to the U.S. invasion of Iraq, quote, I wish I could say, however, that general understanding of the Middle East, the Arabs, and Islam in the United States has improved somewhat, but alas, it really hasn't. In the U.S., the hardening of attitudes, the tightening grip of demeaning generalization and triumphalist cliché, the dominance of crude power allied with simplistic contempt of dissenters and others, has found a fitting correlative in the looting, pillaging, and destruction of Iraq's libraries and museums." End quote. I include this to say that Eurocentric views have a way of manifesting themselves in, surprise, surprise, Eurocentric creators. For example, Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. And they're appreciated and positively reinforced by similarly Eurocentric audiences. This is why the Justice League can talk about Ruman Harjavti as a, quote, terrorist dictator without ever having to establish it narratively, and why the audience can just accept it without any sort of interrogation. This is yet another aspect of at least a perceived power dynamic. It's a great example of American exceptionalism. The first panel of the next page concludes Ryder's interview with Harjavti, thank God. It concludes it, however, not in the studio itself, but seen on presumably the same mysterious monitor screen on which we witnessed parts of the meeting between Lord and the Martian Manhunter. After the interview is shut off, the intelligence running the show asks itself a question. We know because that same computery font pops up on the screen, since that's apparently how computers work. The text on the screen reads, taking into consideration media hostility, odds on United Nations accepting our proposal. And I should point out here that the oh-so-modern font is so illegible that it took me three tries to realize that it said odds and not booze. The next panel is the computer's answer to itself, nil. To be honest, it was actually that contextualization that helped me understand that it was odds. In the next back and forth, the computer discourses, recommendation, change the booze. We cut then to a strange golden and spherical satellite orbiting above Earth. Slowly and deliberately, it opens an iris aimed straight for the planet. Suddenly, a huge beam of red energy blasts forth from the unknown technology. We follow its path down to somewhere out in the Pacific Ocean, where it steams a huge radius and probably ruins the day of more than a few fish. Of course, we hear nothing from Aquaman. The members of the League we just left in the headquarters are immediately alerted to whatever is happening. Mr. Miracle and Captain Marvel, who also have strikingly similar color palettes on top of their old-timey-sounding superhero names, rush to the monitor console to get the lowdown on it, while Guy Gardner, in his recently wimpified state, expresses his hope that there isn't any trouble. Mr. Miracle pulls up a readout that briefly states the nature of the emergency. The group agrees that they have to act fast, but in a moment sparkling with the patina of pure humor, Guy suggests that they should consult Batman because he's ever so intellectual. How droll. Once again, we're brought to the office of Max Lord. We see the Martian Manhunter flying away in the distance and can safely assume that it's because he's been made aware of that dire situation. Now alone in the room, Lord begins to put it together that whoever or whatever he's been working with might have just acted without his knowledge nor approval. 
He pulls out what was probably in 1987 considered a futuristic looking pocket-sized computing machine and confirms his suspicions. You believe that someone from another planet is trying to signal us? Yes. I'm determined to get the message. Catching up on the progress of the beam itself, we learn through a conversation Batman has with a nameless scientist at Star Labs with no explanation of how anyone got there or what most of the League was doing beforehand or any sort of sensible narrative contextualization, that the beam has been cutting a destructive path from the middle of the Pacific and made landfall, probably in Hawaii, at three that morning. Its projected path will take it right across several nuclear bases within the United States. Man. If only the Justice League had let those alien superheroes from issues two and three bust up all the world's nuclear arsenals. Would have been so convenient for this exact situation. But speaking of nuclear weapons, I think it's time we talk about a program pushed by the Reagan administration that I mentioned very briefly in those same Nukebuster episodes. The Strategic Defense Initiative, known more commonly as Star Wars. Imagine that I just blasted half a second of that signature John Williams horn sforzando and then hilariously cut away from it, because I don't want to get sued to hell and back, and that's all you're getting. The Strategic Defense Initiative, for its time, represented to most mainstream journalists and pundits the pinnacle of bloated military. It was lambasted as too expensive and not technologically feasible. Others were afraid that it would ignite an arms race, which is silly, because there was no arms race, and there never has been. It's not a race if one country is being constantly threatened by a technologically superior aggressor and is just struggling to keep up. The Soviet Union literally never once, not one time in history, outpaced the U.S. in terms of weapons development. Sure, it created the Tsar Bomba, theoretically the largest atomic bomb in history, but only one was ever built and it obviously never got dropped. Thus, its actual megatonnage can never be verified, and even if it could, the casing itself was so large and heavy that the bomb could never be deployed practically. From the released Soviet archives documents, it has been ascertained that the bomb was never even meant to be deployed. It was only ever meant to place psychological pressure on the U.S. So, then why was Star Wars sold to the public as a defensive maneuver? To answer this, I'm going to quote from a very famous and very yellow speech given by Dr. Michael Parenti in 1986. The real ones know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to try very hard not to do it in his voice. Quote, The criticisms about Star Wars are largely irrelevant in that area. Scientists have said it's a ridiculous project. It's going to have to work the first time and work perfectly. Only if the Soviets launch their 10,000 missiles at us in a fit of peeve one day, and they say, let's destroy the world, and then they send the missiles at us. Only then will Star Wars have to work perfectly. But if the function of Star Wars is to be a shield against the feeble retaliatory strike of the Soviets after a first strike by the US, then Star Wars becomes much more effective. And Ronald Reagan himself let the cat out of the bag last year when he said it doesn't have to work perfectly. And then his advisors had to pull him away from the platform because they explained it to him just that morning at breakfast. If I can only block out 90% of 10,000 missiles, then I will still be destroyed by 1,000 missiles. But if all the Ruskies have left are 60 to 70 missiles, and I can block 90% of those, only seven or eight will hit us. And that is called acceptable collateral damage." End quote. 
According to the Center for Defense Information, the total military budget for the Cold War, 1948 to 1991, was $22,902,874,419.95. I'm not even going to begin to imagine what kinds of services that money could have paid for instead. Forget anti-poverty programs, that money could have just ended poverty in the entire world. 1987 alone was nearly 650 billion using the same inflation calculations. It's impossible to know the true military budget of the USSR for the same period for two reasons. One, USSR government spending was a closely guarded secret pre-Glasnost. The records we do have indicate that for 1988, the USSR spent the equivalent of about $77 billion in 2021 dollars. But this is also obscured propagandistically by the second reason we can never know the true numbers. U.S. military, quote, experts and analysts estimated that the Soviets spent nearly 10 times that and made it widely known that that was the number that they came to. I can't know for certain, but it's not a stretch to assume that this number was calculated both for its scary simplicity and the fact that it put Soviet spending just ahead of that of the U.S. That second part I could understand. Again, the, quote, evil empire of the Soviets was very possibly spending like their lives depended on it because they were constantly in danger of being struck first by the U.S., especially if, and here we're bringing it back around, the U.S.'s Star Wars program were to ever actually come into effect. Currently, the United States spends more money on its military than the next 10 biggest spending countries combined. There's a very definite reason for this, and it has nothing to do with national defense. Nor really has it ever in the last hundred years or so. But that's an issue for season two. Back to the comic, we're still at Star Labs with the Justice League and Poindexter McLab code. Despite Batman's steadfast resolve that they'll be able to stop the impending collision of the possibly alien space laser with, I guess, Cheyenne Mountain or something, the rest of the League isn't so sure. One can only assume that Star Labs, a recurring organization in the DC Universe that is generally well-meaning but sometimes misguided, must be on that sweet, sweet US military funding gig because they apparently have the resources to slap together a full combination of space shuttle, two solid rocket boosters, and the external fuel tank in half an hour. Attention, Astra flight crew, stand by for mass pickup at T-30. We learn from the chatter among the League as they're exiting Earth's atmosphere that Guy Gardner, in his newly docile and helpful mental state, has volunteered to remain on the ground and perform the much maligned monitor duty. This is quite possibly the stupidest thing in the whole book because he's a Green Lantern, essentially a space cop. He's supposed to be in space. His power ring lets him breathe in space. It lets him move around in space. It can hit things in space and not push him backwards in space. He's made for space. 
What the fuck is the Blue Beetle going to do in space? He doesn't have any powers. We've never seen him do anything except almost throw a switch too late because he was mad at everyone. Even Batman is at a disadvantage in space compared to the Green Lantern because he's just a guy with a tool belt. What the fuck is this decision? <clears throat> also. Apparently, the Star Labs shuttle has weapon systems that Mr. Miracle was somehow able to modify in a way that's never explained, in the same 30 minutes it took to get everyone and everything space ready. Naturally, though, the weapons fail to even scratch the satellite firing the beam, so the team has to do a spacewalk, without the one team member who could have done it without a suit. The Blue Beetle makes a dumb Star Trek joke, an original series reference even though this issue came out three whole months after the Next Generation premiered, for shame, and Batman tells him to shut the hell up, basically. As the team approaches the satellite, a panel on it opens and reveals a shit ton of missiles that all fail to hit any of the oncoming superheroes. The Martian Manhunter is able to catch one in mid-flight and hurl it back to the alien ore, destroying the part of it that had fired on them just as it was loading more missiles. As the team deals with the remaining projectiles, Booster Gold notices an odd thing about the satellite. It has a camera on it. A camera that's watching them. Of course, the Russian probes have photographed most of the solar system. Batman investigates it, but just as he's realizing that the camera appears to have been manufactured on Earth, he gets zapped by another aspect of the satellite's defenses. In what would be a heart-stopping moment in any other comic, it's revealed that Batman's spacesuit has been shredded. Booster flies over to him, only to find out that he's not, in fact, dead. Because of this strange development, Batman realizes that the team may not be in the kind of danger they thought they were, and has, in fact, been set up somehow. He instructs Booster to fly him back to the shuttle so he can begin to figure out just what the hell is going on. We cut to a montage of various international talking head pundits and newscasters describing to their audiences what's going on up in orbit. Beneath each of the reporters is a text box with that same computery looking font. As the last newscaster describes the Justice League as Earth's best hope for surviving this apparent crisis, the computer text indicates that the United Nations is now very likely to accept the proposal of whatever mysterious being or group is manipulating all of this. Back in space, Mr. Miracle begins to piece together that he's familiar with the alien technology and appears to sacrifice himself in his attempt to confirm his suspicions by flying directly into the giant red beam. He appears within it unscathed, makes a shitty joke about how scared he is of his wife, and is able to deactivate the satellite just seconds before the beam collides with a US nuclear base. In the next scene, we're back at the UN. Three old men that apparently have dibs on the Security Council's only microphones are watching the League's space ordeal on a boxy 80s TV set. Only one of them asks the obvious question of how in the world is this being broadcast? The other two don't apparently give a shit. Whoever these men are, they appear to have the power to approve changes to the League roster, because they mention mollifying both the US and the USSR with the inclusion of both Captain Adam, a US military officer who was essentially forced into an Air Force experiment because the US military in the DC universe is apparently almost as full of literal actual psychopaths as it is in the real world, and Rocket Red, one of the faceless and nameless Russian Iron Man ripoffs we saw in issues two and three. 
Once the men are in agreement on those two, they buzz the intercom to request the presence of Max Lord and the Martian Manhunter. If it strikes you as ominous that the UN would have the power to marshal up militaristic or at least physically oriented influence, you're probably right to be worried. The UN is, after all, a pale wraith of what it philosophically should be and only serves the interest of the seven richest countries in the world. But here we're presented with something much, much more disturbing. It's true in our world that corporations have almost total control over most of the planet, necessarily meaning most of the governments too. But man, they're just so explicit about it here, with Maxwell Lord essentially dictating to the United Nations the terms of an international sanction for the Justice League. And that's it, that's, that's the big reveal, by the way. In case you didn't get it from the fact that, for something like 30 goddamn issues, this comic book is called Justice League International. The terms of the sanction aren't addressed in the slightest, at least not in this volume. But really, after all this time getting to know this book, are we honestly surprised? Before we leave the UN Security Council, I do want to point out that that one guy who questioned the validity and source of the broadcast is also the same one who points out that the UN doesn't even know who the fuck is actually in the Justice League because they wear masks. He's still in support of the measure for some unfathomable reason, but at the very least, he's thinking somewhat critically. All right, I think it's time. I'm gonna drop the bomb on you folks here that I've been talking about for a while now. Are you ready? I think you're ready. I think after all this, with your new knowledge of power and how it actually works, you're prepared to understand just how stupid and messed up this whole conceit of an internationally sanctioned Justice League actually is. Logically, when the UN talks about controlling the Justice League in an international and sanctioned capacity, that must mean that it's giving them permission to do more violence. All of the stuff that the League could do that the UN would not approve of is already illegal. A UN sanction literally can only be a protective allowance for certain otherwise frowned upon instances and uses of physical force. Truly, all a UN sanction can do is make this Justice League more worse. The UN Security Council is actually considering not approving the proposal when Superman bursts into the chamber and intervenes on the proposal's behalf for some reason. We can assume that some time passes because we then cut to Max explaining to the League that they will now be a UN-sanctioned international peacekeeping force. Which is exactly as bad as it sounds if you know anything about the history of UN peacekeeping forces and Rwanda and Sudan, and Haiti, and Congo, and Ethiopia, and all of the child sex trafficking rings in those countries. I'm just gonna let you look this one up. The only good part about this whole scene is that Black Canary finally stands up to Batman. Of course, it's because she's in favor of more UN control, but we can't have everything. Barring Batman, the League wholeheartedly agrees that this is all a wonderful idea. And then a bunch of them quit. We pretty much saw it coming with Captain Marvel, since he was basically the only character we got any inner glimpse of. 
The still addled and therefore not reprehensible Green Lantern informs Batman that Dr. Fate gives his regards but won't be staying on. Damn, what a disappointment. And Batman cedes leadership of the League to the Martian Manhunter, citing that he prefers the shadows to the spotlight. And sure, whatever, that's fine. Lord interrupts the hullabaloo amidst all the surprise roster change announcements and tells the League that it's time to meet the public. And okay, no lie, in a vacuum and without any context, I actually kind of really like the last page. It looks like the last day of camp photo, with all the League members standing awkwardly for the camera, but with a familiar sort of ease with each other under the UN symbol. The caption reads, in today's world, there's no longer room for borders and boundaries. The walls between nations have to fall if our planet is to survive. So the last question, then, is why? Why all of this? Why me? Why you? Why this podcast? Why this comic book? Why Ronald Reagan? What does any part of it have to do with any other part? Because all of these things, everything I've talked about over the last however many hours of audio, are related somehow to power. And not just to power, but to what the people with power use that power for. And to how one of those uses has been to make the other uses seem more than just acceptable, more than even laudable. It's been used to make them seem natural and inevitable. In episode two, I talked about the beginnings of liberalism, an ideology based academically on the principles of prosperity, dignity, and progress, rhetorically on the efficacy of free trade, and realistically on none of those things. Liberalism has damaged the world in three destructive ways. One, it systematized and codified a philosophy of extraction. Before liberal capitalism, use or abuse of natural resources was a variable and eminently localized social situation. After it, such destruction was de rigueur. It was no longer a measured and personal, if still evil, choice that local lords made. It became just what one did if one was a local lord. How this came to be is a result of the second destructive tendency introduced by liberal capitalism, that of proselytization of liberal capitalism as the way the world should work. This was very much the work of the nascent Enlightenment academia at the time, which, of course, was patronized by local lords, to a degree. Finally, the extraction of value from the land and the spreading of the good word to people share no small measure of synergy with the third sin, accumulation. This one's the big one, folks. Accumulation, as opposed to distribution, is the snowballing process that keeps capitalism alive, or will keep it alive until it literally cannot function anymore. Through liberal capitalism's accumulated processes, a minority of people with wealth and means are able to spend more on the labor and equipment required for extraction. They underpay the labor, which leads to more accumulation, furthering the wealth divide between them and the people they underpay. Then they proselytize. They expand. But that's a teaser for season two. It should be obvious to you now, if you've been following along, that capitalism enables those with the most destructive tendencies to capture and retain power. Capitalism is itself a violent and destructive system. So why isn't it obvious to everyone else? 
Well, there are multiple reasons. We can break them down into two categories, the material and the cultural, both of which feed back into and upon each other. Materially speaking, very good money is sunk every single day into convincing people that capitalism is good and that those who do not fit neatly into its people-grinding mechanisms, whether as those who grind or those who are to be ground, are bad. I've harped on and on about the Washington Post, and especially in the New York Times, and I'm pretty sure I got a decent dig in about CNN and MSNBC in the first episode. These outlets are owned by people for whom capitalism is designed. They benefit from it, and thus have no reason to publish, or allow to be published rather, any content that would meaningfully threaten the system that has served them so well. On the other hand, they have every reason to publish content that denigrates and demonizes people and systems that do present a substantial threat to their income. This is where propaganda against the US's official enemies, and the Soviet Union in particular, comes into play. And that's why I had to spend nearly two episodes on just anti-Russian sentiment alone in this season. Don't worry, there will be plenty of that next season too. But what about internal affairs? How has it gotten to the point where most people simply don't know or care about the horrors that are inflicted literally hourly upon millions of people living in the US? Well, we covered part of that too. It mostly boils down to two prongs here, pro-corporate news pieces like we saw in episodes four and six because corporations are the real power in America, and pro-police or anti-labor, anti-poor stories like I went over in episodes four, five, and six. In America, corporations have accumulated the power and the police are there to protect that power by keeping private property safe from harm and violently beating and abducting anyone who might threaten a capitalist's bottom line, i.e. a poor person in a neighborhood that real estate interests want to invest in, or a labor organization that's demanding higher wages. Okay, so we understand that capitalism sucks because it keeps wealth away from the people who actually labored to create it. It glorifies the jerks who pay exorbitant amounts to have themselves cast in a good light. The propaganda against and projection onto othered international bad guys like Russia, Iran, and Libya keeps the domestic population angry at all the wrong leaders and institutions. Anyone who's outside the system of capitalist oppression is met with quite often murderous violence by the police or the military, even if it was in no way their choice to be in that situation. None of this is any good. But why? Finally, why this comic? And why Ronald Reagan? Ronald Reagan's biggest contribution to the rise of corporate power was not all the de jure deregulation that his administration immediately set about realizing, but it was the near explicit communication to the corporate world that neither his regime nor any other after him would ever threaten the power of big business ever again. As Chomsky put it, the Reagan administration made it clear and open to the business world that it was simply not going to enforce the laws. And this comic book, this terrible excuse for a Justice League, written by liberals who clearly believe themselves to be anti-Reagan, 
so encapsulates the ethos of the Reagan era that it was a no-brainer. To bring it back to the first episode, this Justice League, so very full of humans, manifests its human relationships in ways that should never have been relatable, but are becoming more and more ingrained daily. Like we are meant to now, these characters snipe, they gripe, they connive and undercut. But importantly, with the introduction and influence of Maxwell Lord, we are presented with a league that is an ultra-powerful force of physical and martial influence that, while suspicious of individual motive, uncritically accepts the kind of corporate control that Lord is attempting to impose upon them. And this is the true trickle-down effect that corporations have bestowed upon us. This is the cultural as the result of the material. And just as he appears in this comic, first attempting to pass off decision power to Superman and then settling for Nancy, Ronald Reagan is the locus, the crossover point, the X on the map for where and when the U.S. government stopped being even remotely a servant of the people and instead became the protector and champion of the now true governing powers of the world. The massive fiefdoms of corporations, each with their own laws and religions ranging from dress codes to violent physical manipulation, are now answerable to no one. Well, almost no one. They're answerable to us. I hope that, after all this history, all this spiral, all this illustration of power at its root, I've drawn you all to a particular conclusion. It is not politicians or governments that dictate policy or social consciousness. Those in power merely cement the influence of those who have organized around the issues these politicians have promised to support. Whether organic, genuine, and righteously furious, or falsified, bought, and reactively aggrieved, these movements reflect the mass action of people, of collectives. So, more than anything, more than a frustrating history of the decline of an already soulless and vile system, more than a fun shared laugh at a comic book that enjoys far more popularity than it should, this podcast has been and will continue to be a call to action. Get out there and organize around an issue in your community that you stand for. Go protest the new power plant or the next freeway. Stand up to a city government that provides more and more advanced weapons of actual war to its racist police force. Hell, just get out there and learn your neighbors' names. Protect the vulnerable. Protect your community. Protect each other. A better world is possible, and there has never been a better time to start your own origin stories and become the heroes we all need. Become your own Justice League. Thank you.
Greetings once again to you fine folks out there in listener land. I, your humble announcer, would like first and foremost to extend a hearty and genuine thank you to everyone who has taken this journey with us. We know it's been rough at times and rougher at others. It's a big, scary world out there, and it won't be getting any better on its own. But with your help, I'm sure we'll be just fine. You may be wondering what's next for our intrepid crew. What wonders and heartaches, miracles and atrocities will we be covering next? Which comic books will we wring the life out of? Well, we'll just have to see. In the meantime, we've got a whole slew of extra content for Patreon subscribers. Every season of our show is free, and they always will be. But if you just can't get enough of our blasted insights, please consider supporting the work on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash collectiveactioncomics. There you'll find curated reading lists and a private Discord channel to talk with us about them. You'll get bonus episodes and shout-outs on the air. For our top-tier supporters, there's even a certain surprise we've got in the works right now that will help us all put our money where our mouths are if we are indeed serious about materially benefiting the oppressed. To find out more and enjoy whatever strange notions pop into the host's head, you can follow us on Instagram at Collective Action Comics Podcast or Twitter at Call Comics, C-O-L-C-O-M-I-X. Or you can email the show at CollectiveActionComics at gmail.com. And once again, thank you for listening and tune in next time for Collective Action Comics. Comics.